Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Pleiadian Lineup, Tuesday, May 17th, 2022. And I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-hosts for the evening, Lavendar and Anastasia. Our next two Starseed Quest to Arkansas will be August 12th through the 15th, and then November 11th through the 14th. The August is for the Harmonic Convergence anniversary, and of course November then will be the Pleiadian lineup. So if you have at least one galactic marking on your chart, you're eligible to attend. So you can write to crystals at starseedhotline.com for more details. Our guest this evening is Reverend Dr. Stephanie Redfeather, who is a Divine Feminine Change Agent and Champion of Empaths, an award-winning author of the international bestseller, The Evolutionary Empath, and her new release, Empath Activation Cards. Her passion is to help fellow sensitive souls break out of energetic jail and fully embrace their soul's evolution as co-creators of New Earth Consciousness. As a shamanic minister and prolific creator of spiritual tools, Stephanie founded Blue Star Temple, an online resource for spiritual seekers to learn energetic skills, hone empathic abilities, access spiritual knowledge, and connect with cosmic consciousness. Her specialties include masculine-feminine balance and connect with cosmic consciousness. Uh, I just skipped that part. Uh, So... My page is jumping around here. Uh, she also specializes in establishing boundaries, energy hygiene, shamanic uh, services, and spirituality and hard science. First earning a bachelor's degree in mathematics and serving as an Air Force officer, she holds a master's and doctorate in shamanic studies and is a mesa carrier in the Pachacuti Mesa tradition of Peru. Stephanie is a contributing author to the number one bestsellers, Animals, Personal Tales of Encounters with Spirit Animals, and Chaos to Clarity, Sacred Stories of Transformational Change, and The Ultimate Guide to Self-Healing, Volume 2. You can find her books, her spiritual tools, and workshops on her website, which is bluestartemple.org. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest to starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. Do you have starseed children or grandchildren? Are you constantly trying to get them off the screens? I know it's a big problem so many, for many, so I've written a book to help children want to put the phone down and reconnect with Mother Nature by understanding the animal guides of Native America. It's called Magical Messages from the Animal Kingdom, and it's on Amazon. If you just type Ariel Taylor in the search bar, you'll get right to it. And we'd like to thank Fiona and Jada for hosting the switchboard tonight for those who may have a comment or question. Our main website is starseedhotline.com, and the Stage 1 Starseed Confirmations are based on Lavendar's Discovery of Star Markings and your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one Zoom session available with Anastasia, Emerald, Miara, Riley, or myself. 
Lavendar has now retired from doing sessions so she can finish her book and continue writing for Starseeds. And remember, if you have a birthday coming up, you're going to get a window of 10 hours of power. You can make the most of that and find out exactly when it happens by requesting your solar return timing. And it usually takes less than a week to get that. So first up tonight, I would like to introduce Anastasia with her wonderful Starseed News. Oh, I, sorry, your button's not clicking. Hang on, there you go. This screen is just jumping around. Okay. Well, Welcome to Mercury Retrograde. <laughs> yeah. uh, it is so good to have you back. It's so good to be back with you. So it's a great night. Beautiful spring yes. evening. Goodness sakes. We have some news for you all. And at the top of my list, and I'm, you've probably heard about this on mainstream, so I'm sure you have. As a matter of fact, I just have to cover it. Come on. This is Starseed News. And the top story for tonight is UFO hearing is featured as historic testimony as occurred with Pentagon officials in Congress. You heard about that, right? right? Wow. Congress held a rare public hearing today into the existence of what the government calls unidentified aerial phenomena, more commonly known as UFOs, which has been a subject of scrutiny by the Pentagon and U.S. intelligence agencies following an increase in sightings by military personnel and pilots in recent years. Now, the government effort has collected eyewitness accounts, including from naval aviators who say they saw flying objects that seemed to lack any visible means of propulsion and defied human understanding of aerodynamics and physics. The hearing was the first time in more than 50 years that U.S. officials have provided testimony for public consumption about their investigation of UFOs. Now, the Air Force closed its inquiry into that subject in a Project Blue Book uh, back in 1970. You've all heard about Project Blue Book. Well, according to lawmakers, they said, we know that our service members have encountered unidentified aerial phenomena. And the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security told a bipartisan panel of lawmakers, we are committed to an effort to determine these origins. Well, while the hearing marked a significant moment in the government's efforts to reveal more of what it knows about unexplained objects in the sky, it was short on revelations. No surprise there. It was revealed that U.S. military pilots have had 11 near misses with UFOs. There have been no collisions, and the military has never attempted to communicate with the objects nor fired on them, according to officials. Officials also say that they are doubtful that the handful of sightings for which there is no clear, explana- clear explanation will point to a sophisticated, secretive military to- technology from Russia, China, or maybe other U.S. adversaries. So it isn't human enemies that are doing this, they say. The intelligence report from last year found that U.S. government investigators lack data to indicate that the craft are part of a foreign collection program or indicative of a major technological advancement by a potential adversary. The government was unable to determine whether more than 140 UFOs were atmospheric events that played tricks on sensors, Um, or maybe craft piloted by foreign adversaries, or maybe the objects could be extraterrestrial in origin. The Defense Department investigators don't have any physical evidence, they tell us, that would suggest visitors from other worlds have come to Earth, they said. 
So there it is. That's how that story ends. Uh, same old, same old. The more things change, the more they stay the same. But there yeah. it is. And uh, that's made, uh, I don't know, New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times. It's all over. All right. Well, this is a cool story. Now, should I tell you this? I'm going to tell you. It doesn't really have anything to do with my age because, you know, sometimes people raised in the country. I'm from Mount Shasta. Back in the way old days, my mother owned a washing board, scrub board, and we used to wash some clothes by hand. I'll admit it. And, you know, around the world, many people, many women, women particularly are relegated to do the laundry, still wash clothes by hand. And they even wash their clothes in the rivers. So next time you want to kick your washing machine in the side because maybe it's acting up, just be glad you have a washing machine because a lot of people don't. And for up to 70% of the world's population without access to electricity, uh, they just keep up with their laundry and it eats up their time. It's hard on their bodies, hurts their backs, makes their hands bloody. Uh, The painful burden falls disproportionately to women and girls who spend up to 20 hours a week hand-scrubbing their clothes, again, without electricity or even running water. Well, a London engineer has come up with an off-grid solution, a portable, lightweight, hand-crank-powered washing machine that resembles a plastic drum. It's like a drum turned on its side, and it has two handles on each side. You, You can see how that would work. You take the handle, you spin the drum, it washes your clothes. And he says it also doubles as a clothes dryer costs about $60. Well, the inventor, who is 31 years old, wow, promising, he calls it the Divya. And he, he named it that. He wanted to name it after the woman who inspired the project, which was his next-door neighbor when he lived in South India, where he spent a year volunteering when he left his job as an engineer at a high-end vacuum maker, Dyson. He quit making vacuum cleaners, and went to India to volunteer. He met a woman named Divya. He said, when I got to know her, I was so frustrated by all the unpaid labor that she had to do to keep her clothes clean. So he returned to the UK to found the Washing Machine Project in 2018. And after a few months, he developed a prototype, and guess what? He got a grant to undertake the project. Well, since March of last year or so, More than 150 devias have been distributed to refugees in Iraq through nonprofit partners. He says the feedback was overwhelmingly positive. His goal is to deliver 8,000 washing machines in 10 countries over the next three years. He said it will save 75% of these women's time, 50% of the water required to wash clothes, and that women and young girls will be free to pursue an education. Wow. wow. Well, aside from the Divya, this inventor has also worked on making clean and fuel-efficient cook stoves. He plans to develop off-grid refrigerators, air conditioners, and lighting. He sees the world's growing refugee crisis as an urgent call for innovation. He said, we have a huge need for appliances that make life better for people, for all those souls out there without electricity, running water, so on and so forth. What a wonderful human being. Yeah. Bless his heart. Bless his like heart. like to see his chart. Yeah, at that, I knew you would. <laughs> Absolutely. Me too. But it kind of speaks for itself, doesn't it? It does. What a wonderful yes, it does. person. And in New Mexico. You know, 
I tell you guys, a lot of people are getting with the program. A lot of people are raising their consciousness. It's even working in the halls of government now and then. Now, I love New Mexico. It is a fabulous state. I could live there. I love it. And, you know, if you've ever seen a New Mexico license plate, what does it say? The land of enchantment. Well, the land of enchantment has just launched the closest thing the United States has to universal child care. Yep. Now, they're supporting the average parent in New Mexico. No state has ever gone as far as New Mexico, which has now begun offering free full-time child care to most of its families, and that program starts this month. Wow. Yeah. Under the program, families earning up to 400% of the federal poverty level, which surprisingly for a family of four, that is a whopping $111,000 per year. I suppose they're taking in the high cost of inflation that we're all enduring at the moment. But anybody, a family of four, up to $111,000 a year, that's the poverty level for a uh, family of four, they're eligible for free childcare. Now, this initiative is funded by an endowment sustained by taxes on oil and natural gas production, and that's projected to be flush with $4.3 billion in just a couple of years. Plenty of money to take care of these children. Advocates say that free child care will help residents get back to work after COVID-related job losses. And some are thinking even bigger, hoping that New Mexico's success will provide a blueprint for other states to finance similar initiatives. Well, the, the price of childcare has gone through the roof, and uh, along with everything else. And this is a wonderful thing to do with that money, putting it back to help others, to help people. It's great. And in Chicago, uh, wow, this is also a really cool story. A Chicago neighborhood is developing a cutting-edge form of urban energy independence that could make itself and other cities more resilient to blackouts and further the environmental concerns, not concerns, solutions. So they tell us we can take a stroll around Chicago's Bronzeville neighborhood on a nice spring afternoon. It's kind of a cool neighborhood. It has Romanesque-style gray stones, classic brick three flats, and the sound of children in a game of kickball. Kind of a nice place. But what you might not be expecting, they tell us, is the brightly colored mural emerging out of a vast, vacant lot on South Michigan Avenue. And more significantly, a massive electrical battery that lies beneath the cinder block wall. Well, that battery is only one small part of the Bronzeville Community Microgrid, which combines rooftop solar, natural gas-fired generators, and batteries to produce and store energy on a local level. Once it's fully operational, it will render the entire neighborhood energy independent, giving it the ability to disconnect from and reconnect to Chicago's citywide grid whenever it wants to. This will earn this the accolade of becoming the country's first neighborhood-scale microgrid, with energy experts suggesting it could serve as a model for utilities and communities across the United States. Now, earlier this year, this project, funded in part by a $4 million grant from the U.S. Department of Energy, passed efficacy tests demonstrating that the basic design of the system works, although it still has to go through a few hurdles with permits and such. But once those have been cleared, the microgrid will be able to power more than 1,000 homes, 
businesses and public institutions like hospitals. Uh, that that's just awesome. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, think of all the cities. Think about. Uh, Puerto Rico that lost all that power during the hurricanes and all of the suffering that people go through without having a backup system. Here now we're talking about communities developing their own backup systems and with the capacity and the, the uh, technology to do it. Tremendous. All right, I'm going to get all environmental on you now. Does this water have legal rights? Uh, there are five bodies of water in the state of Florida, they're threatened by development. And they're making the unprecedented argument that nature has legal rights to. They tell us that Mary Jane is a looker. Her curves hug the Isle of Pine Preserve to the southeast of Orlando in Florida. Residents enjoy her coolness for kayaking, and her body of water is part of spectacular wetlands that connect her to her twin, otherwise known as Lake Hart. She's the first lake in the United States to make waves by filing a lawsuit. And they're calling her Mary Jane. Well, uh, a company called Beachline South Residential is a developer, and it wants to take advantage of the popularity of these wetlands and to convert 2,000 acres of that pine woods and cypress forest and wetlands into apartments and offices. So Mary Jane, Lake Hart, Two other local waters and a marsh in Orange County have done what most Americans who feel existentially threatened would do. They've lawyered up. The human who filed the lawsuit against the developer uh, on the behalf of Mary Jane and her fellow plaintiffs uh, has said this, we must protect this environmental treasure. He said right now there is a building boom that is leveling forests at record rates and destroying large swaths of nature. It's important that local governments have the right to protect their environment. Well, this man says he grew up in Orange County. He watched developers concrete almost all of the county, not least with the arrival of Disney World in the 1970s. I've been there. I agree. It's all concrete. He's passionate, he says, about the local waterways. So he launched a campaign in 2013 to galvanize support for the state's wildlife and the flora and fauna. Now, at the time, uh, he was a Florida businessman, but he believed the rights of nature was probably too radical, <clears throat> but he changed his mind after several weather events in 2018 caused contamination and massive fish die-offs. At that point, he said, I understood that we needed to change the legal system fundamentally. So what he's attempting to do with the lawsuit on behalf of the water is uh, trying to change our attitudes and our perceptions about the earth itself. He said, the current laws are stacked against nature because nature is viewed as property. When you buy a property, you can do whatever you want to do with it. Our planet needs to take into account that these are natural bodies of water and that forests and animals have a right to live. He said, looking at the history of the Constitution, he believes it's time to expand the definition of rights. When the Constitution was written, only a certain few people were rights-bearing, generally white, property-owning males. The point is that we need to instill rights in our legal system for nature. And he's not alone in his belief. In November of last year, Orange County voters approved a charter amendment to protect the rights of nature by a margin of 90%. 
and that in Florida, where people don't agree to anything, that was astonishing. He said, the man that we're talking about here, he said, the amendment grants nature four rights. The right to exist, to flow, to be protected against pollution, and to maintain a healthy ecosystem. That, paired with the human right for all citizens to have clean water, went on the ballot and passed with 89% of the votes. Now, by advocating for earth laws, this man is taking a page from the playbook of the indigenous peoples all over the planet. And according to the first Native American woman to earn a science degree from Oxford, she says, I was taught that water is alive. It can hear. It holds memories. The reasons that lakes and rivers should have the same rights as humans. So there we have it. I mean... The mindsets are just shifting very dramatically, very rapidly. These kinds of stories prove it. You know, sometimes it seems that problems are too big to overcome, but then people punch through. They punch through with new ideas and new solutions, and it comes rather quickly. And right now, you know, many solutions are coming just as fast as the problems. Well, here's an endearing story, and then we'll be done. Um, U.S. soldiers did something that, Well, they wanted to make amends for something else. An Italian woman had her birthday cake returned to her 77 years after American soldiers made off with their celebration cake. Now, on April 28th, uh, it's been a month ago, the city of Vicenza and U.S. Army Garrison Italy took a moment to remember the day when Americans arrived in the city during World War II. They titled the event, the event, One Community Remembering April 28, 1945. And they were trying to commemorate the 77th anniversary of the Army's arrival and the decades of friendship with the French ever since. But they had a special guest at their event. The now elderly woman was 13 years old that day the Americans came to her village. She had to shelter in the attic of her family's farm uh, to hide. Germans were firing shots near her house. She said the memories haunted her forever. But by the time her 13th birthday came around, uh, the battle was over. So, just just recently over. So her mother baked her a cake to celebrate her birthday and to celebrate the new freedom. She put it out on the windowsill to cool off. But before they could eat it, before she could decorate it, before she could frost it, the American soldiers marching down the streets reached in the window and helped themselves. So, guilt-laden, <laughs> the army uh, returned the cake for her 90th birthday. So, oh. it's a sweet story. The cake is beautiful. Very, very fancy. As I was looking at the picture of the old woman in the cake, I thought, that's really lovely, but you know, there's nothing like a cake your mother bakes you. Nevertheless, yeah. the woman was very grateful and told of all the memories it brought back and took this all with a great smile and it was lovely. It's nice to know that soldiers can have a heart too and that there are men who fight and are soldiers that are good people and have kindness and love and concern. There's a nice example of that. All right. Well, finally, I'll give you this last story. And this is wild, you guys. Um, speaking of the natural world, you guys know I'm kind of obsessed with that, but 
and I think it's a good thing to be obsessed with, but that's beside the point. We are moving in a, living in a time where technology is just running over everything. And it can be pretty hard to imagine technological society coexisting in the natural world. You know, a lot of time now we're just seeming to live our lives entirely online. And this realm is, seems completely separated from nature. It is separated from nature. And also from just physical space itself. Get involved on the Internet or whatever you're doing online. You know, you don't even notice your desk. You're hardly aware of your chair. You don't know what's in your house. You're just tuning in out into a virtual world. And scientists now from the University of Cambridge have proven that computers can not only coexist with the living world, but can be powered by it. Now, wow, check this out. Cambridge researchers have developed a system of, of similar size to an AA battery with a type of non-toxic algae called Sinichocystis. Sinichocystis. It's the size of a AA battery. Get it? That? Okay. It naturally takes in solar energy through its photosynthesis. It's an algae. This produces a small electrical current that interacts with the aluminum electrode attached to the system, and it powers a microprocessor. Not only does the system operate on what is biological and very renewable energy, it's made of largely recyclable materials, meaning it can be easily replicated and scaled uh, much smaller or even much larger. According to the researchers, this sort of technology would be particularly useful for isolated devices that need to be powered far off the electrical grids where electricity is limited. They're talking about the Internet of Things will require increasing amounts of power, and they say that this has to come from systems that can generate energy rather than store it like batteries. And the man who said that is a biochemist. So the device doesn't require anything else to survive, and it produces energy with sunlight, which it eats. That's the main source of its food. That being said, it can still produce energy after the sun has gone down, just not as much. So this union of algae and tech could be used in myriad applications and could play a vital role in future initiatives to power essential technology in remote locations, like, for example, a desalination unit in a remote seaside village. Awesome. There's wow, more yeah. solutions. And last, uh, uh, I said it, I promise. Okay, I broke my promise. One more, one more. Firefighters in Singapore saved the lives of 13 cats after a fire broke out in an apartment building. Thirteen cats. The firefighters rescued 14 unconscious cats from the fire and performed CPR on all of them. Thirteen of them lived. They had to conduct a forcible entry into the unit. Uh, and you know what? There was no, apparently no people in the building. The only people evacuated were people in surrounding buildings. Just kitty cats. And they saved them by giving them CPR. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. There's firefighting. Giving yeah. kitties CPR, saving their lives. And risking theirs, by the way, breaking into a burning building to save cats and only cats. Well, let's not say only cats, beautiful beings cats, but you see, it's a, it's a wonderful time really to be alive. Just have to keep our eye on the prize, solutions instead of problems. From my heart to each one of you, much love, everybody. I'm delighted to have you back in my sort of energetic space here. And I hope you all have a wonderful couple of weeks. Look forward to tonight's show. Thank you so much, Ariel. 
Oh, thank you. Great stories this week. Thanks so much. So um, I am going to bring our guest and Lavendar on right now. Get these buttons to work. Okay. I think we got, they're spinning, they're spinning. Okay. Stephanie Redfeather, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And Lavendar, are you ready to go? I'm here. I'm ready. Okay. Okay. So, Stephanie, I, I received your beautiful uh, cards, and uh, they're they're masterful. So I know that you were on the show with us a couple of years ago, and so tell us more about what happened after you wrote your Evolutionary Empath book. It looks like you got some awards. Tell us about that. Yeah, uh, you know, it's a pretty amazing fairy tale story for a first-time author uh, because the, the evolutionary empath, the, the manuscript, was actually my doctoral thesis. And um, the, the woman who created Venus Rising University, her name is Linda Starwolf. She's the creator of Shamanic Breathwork. I was getting my degree through her university. Well, she already had many books published, and she introduced me to her uh, editor at Inner Traditions and said, you know, send your proposal to them, but send it to me too. And it was, it was a one-shot wonder. I sent one proposal to one publisher, got picked up. Uh, the book launched in November of 2019. It was then nominated by my publisher for an award, uh, the Cover Visionary Awards. Uh, Cover stands for Coalition of Visionary Resources. They are a Mind, body, spirit, industry, um, award-giving body, and my book won gold in its category of uh, self-help and personal growth. Um, so it's it's really been an amazing journey with this book. That's great. So I understand that you have a very interesting life story, including being an Air Force officer for ten years. How did you get to where you are now? Yeah, exactly. I mean, when you if you look at the the arc of my life, it's kind of like one of these things is not like the other. You know, <laughs> I, I started out when I was young. I went to a creative and performing arts school, kind of like the TV show Fame. So, you know, I went to math class, and then I went to dance class, and I went to English class, and then I went to theater class, and uh, did all of that. And then fast forward a few years, and I get a math degree and become an Air Force officer. So, you know, what, what transpired in that time uh, is a, a big part of my personal, you know, kind of wounding journey that, that set me up for my sacred work. Um, and, you know, if you frame it in terms of the masculine and feminine, when I started coming into my teenage years, my creative, intuitive side, all of that, I started feeling very misunderstood, very vulnerable, very unsafe in the world. And so my masculine, to the best of his ability, came in and said, I'll save you, and took my feminine and put her in a box and put her away for safekeeping. And so it was like you could, you could chart throughout my high school years the feminine expression going down, the masculine expression going up. And so by the time it was time for me to make decisions about my career, of course, I was very practical and left brain. <laughs> and then... You know, after 10 years in the military, when I realized it was time to get out, um, that really coincided with a, a very intense five-year period of my spiritual awakening, um, which I have described as 
living a hundred years in the space of five because I just moved through so much uh, just personal stuff, growth, transformation, shamanic death and rebirth, however you want to describe it. And when I came out on the other side of it, uh, I was very clear that I had some wisdom, that I had some understanding, um, and I felt compelled. My heart compelled me that if I could make somebody else's journey through the spiritual crucible easier, shorter, if I could support them and help them understand what's happening and give them the tools, then that's what I wanted to do, and that's when I stood up my business. Didn't you spend some time in Peru? Uh, I did. Uh, a few years ago, I finally got to go to Peru. I, I've been practicing in a, a Peruvian tradition of shamanism for, uh, gosh, over 15 years now, and finally got to go to Peru a few years ago. And it was just, it, was, it, it kind of took the practice and the teachings from black and white into color, you know, be, being in the homeland of the, the indigenous Space and the mountains and the peoples where this tradition was birthed uh, was an incredible experience. So why don't we start with definition of an empath, and can you share the five qualities of an empath? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and it's interesting because when I sat down to write The Evolutionary Empath, my spirit guides only gave me one directive. They said, create a definition. <laughs> it's like, okay, sure, no, no pressure. <laughs> but I, uh, I started working with, you know, I had done workshops and worked with clients for a long time, and I had this long list of qualities and experiences and behaviors, and they started organizing themselves into like items. And so what I distilled from that is what I call the five qualities of an empath. And so the first quality is our ability to merge with and absorb the energy of other beings, whether that's people, animals, anything with life force. And this stems from a very open personal energy field. When we come on the planet, we are very open. Uh, but this is also the quality that causes us to unconsciously take on other people's emotions and problems and struggle with boundaries. So, so all of these are, you know, double-sided coin. The second quality is we have a highly sensitive nervous system, which may sound like, you know, okay, duh, well, nervous systems are supposed to be sensitive. But it's like we got a, a double shot. Uh, you know, instead of our volume going up to 10, our volume goes up to 20. We, we feel and sense everything very intensely. So it makes us prone to overwhelm and overstimulation. The third quality is that we have a great sensitivity to the energies around us and an ability to perceive or access subtle information that's stored in the energy field of all types of life forms. So it's, it's this ability to tune into the unseen realms, if you will. So whether that's, you know, for some people they can see or speak to the dead. For others, they are mediums or they become an animal communicator, people see angels or apparitions or have hunches or, you know, so this whole, the whole gamut of uh, kind of this metaphysical, subtle, unseen energy um, realm. The fourth quality is the premium that we place on peace and harmony, and that's in relationships, our environment, our own energy field. Uh, and when we are unconscious of this quality, again, this is the, the other side of the coin, we can tend to be doormats, 
and acquiesce to everybody else's needs because we will do anything we can to keep the peace and not rock the boat. And so when we develop some tools and awarenesses, then we can learn to create that peace but not um, at the expense of ourselves. And the fifth and final qualities are big open hearts and a desire to serve others. So many empaths are inclined towards careers focused on service, uh, but this also can um, incline us towards overgiving and putting ourselves last on the list. And so um, self-care and developing our, our uh, empath toolkit is very critical if we're going to move from thriving, or excuse me, from surviving to thriving. Well, that makes a lot of sense, but I do want to ask you one thing about uh, being an empath, and that is a lot of people have such a open hole in their in their physical body that when they go into a hospital, they start feeling all the different symptoms of everything that's happening in the hospital. What would you say to the person that tries to protect themselves from such activities? Yeah, it, it, we all need to develop a good energy hygiene practice. And so I have a lot of different uh, ways of managing it that I can explain, but whether it's um, imagining the bubble around you, right, your energy field, your the edges of your container, and, and making sure that it is intact so that these unwanted energies don't come through, um, I advise some people to try shaping your energy field to be kind of like a cow catcher on the front of a train so that anything that's coming at you just deflects, you know, off to the side. Um, something that one of my shamanic teachers taught me is to take a couple of fingers and just point it at the ground. You can do this very subtly, and it's great if you're, like, in a public place or in a meeting where there's a lot of people and you're trying to discharge intense energy. It's like a lightning rod where you just, don't take the energies into your body. You just let them discharge and give them to the earth. So those are just a few possible ways of, of managing those intensities. Uh, just recently, uh, we came in contact with a person that said that they were a Hyoka empath. And uh, we asked more about what that was. And he said, I go to these Hiawaska ceremonies and I... Uh, take in the souls and spirits of others that do, that have have a lot of uh, grief and problems and anyway, I was just wondering, have you run across anyone that that says they are a Hyoka empath and do and do work like that? Um, it's interesting. I some time ago, I don't know, maybe a year or two, somebody asked me if I had heard of that term, and that was the first time I'd heard of it, but. What you're describing, if I'm understanding you correctly, is that there are energy workers, shamans, medicine men and women who know how to take dense energies, harmful energies, negative energies, however you want to describe them, you know, trauma, wounding from other people, take them into their own body, transmute them, and then move them out of their body or send them to the earth. But that is that is highly specialized training, and there are some people who did that in past lives and come into this lifetime 
going, why do I keep taking on everybody else's stuff? And, and you know, sometimes it's revealed that in a past life that was their role that they played for the tribe, and they're, they're having echoes and, and memories of that. But it is it, it, it requires skill and training so that it doesn't decimate your own body. Okay, that makes sense. To change the subject a little bit, I wanted to ask you per, about your personal feeling about about what's happening now with Atlantean uh, rising energies that are coming back to the planet. Are you experiencing a lot of people coming to you with Atlantean blueprints, or are you finding scientists that are trying to find you? It, are these things happening for you now about Atlantis? I, I wouldn't say a focus on Atlantis. The, the way it's showing up for me is kind of a more general um, just star nation, you know, star seed, people are awakening to their star heritage. So whether they are from a lineage that incarnated in, you know, Atlantis or or became Lemurian or something else, for me, it's coming forward as just people awakening to the recognition that they have a, a star ancestry. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you talked about the impasse being here on purpose and having a cosmic mission. What is that mission that you see for them? Yeah, it, it really is to help humanity ascend to the next level of consciousness. We are in a cycle of ascension. If you, if you pull back to the largest possible perspective, humanity is ascending in consciousness. We are raising in frequency. Time is speeding up. And so... You know, even a hundred years ago, there were very few empaths on the planet because the, the vibratory frequency of the planet and of humanity was not high enough yet to sustain empaths. Our, our, you know, we're, I'm not trying to say we're better than other people, but our energy bodies are more sensitive, they're more refined. Uh, we come into the planet with, with some subtle differences, and the, the vibratory frequency of the collective is now coming to the point where empaths are ready to embody and they're, you know, exponentially coming into the planet. I, I like to think that in some number of hundreds of years, empath won't even be a word. It'll just be synonymous with human. Yeah, okay. I noticed that you created all the artwork for your cards. Um so you have been an artist in maybe in other lifetimes and in this lifetime too. They're very really beautiful. I appreciate They're, that. Thank you. Yeah. So tell us about the inspiration for the art and your process of creating it. Yeah. I. Um, it, it's interesting because I was ready to, to create this Oracle deck a year before I actually started. But it was new, and I meaning I hadn't done an Oracle deck before, and I had a lot of questions like, do I find the artist? Does the publisher find the artist? Do I pay the artist? Does the publisher pay the artist? How do the royalties work? You know, there was all this stuff to sort out. And I had a reading with my medium. And she said, well, Steph, you're supposed to do the artwork. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I am an artist, but I, but I don't lead with that. And so that really opened the portal and gave me permission. And then all of a sudden, just the whole picture came to me. And the unifying theme, if you will, like if you take the entire deck, flip it over and, and spread it out so you can see all the images, you will notice that every card has some combination of circles or dots 
four bows. And that is what I was told by my spirit guides, that the, the circles and dots are the transmission vehicles, right? These cards are activational. They hold dormant codes that are ready to be turned on, ready to transmit to, you know, based on the, the precise prescription that the user needs in the moment. Well, you know, you, you having the artwork and the words to go with it, that's kind of a double plus, I think, because your artwork and your words are fused together. Yeah, it, and it was such a beautiful creation. And, and when it, uh, the book or the deck launched, I said, I told my husband I felt like I'm having twins, you know, because I have <laughs> the, the book and the artwork both coming out at the same time. <laughs> And the incantations in the poems are so beautiful and powerful. If there's one that you would like to read to us, I think that if you could find one, let's see. Let me open the book and see if I can find one. Because I was reading them while ago going, oh, my goodness, these are very profound. Very profound. Let's see. There was one that that caught my eye. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's see. Where is it? Oh, hmm. How about one page 188? Okay. Do you have the book there? I do. I've got it ready. Yeah. So okay. these, you know, just to, to give people some context, along with the message of each card, there's also an activity, a meditation or an exercise or an incantation, which is basically a poem. And I had no idea I was going to write these. That was not in the vision. It just started happening when I started writing these cards. And about half of the cards, have an incantation. So the, the card uh, is number 40, and it says remember. That is the name of the, the card, and this is the incantation of remembering. I draw my ancient lifetimes forward, the call to rise I've clearly heard. I command my body to remember, gathering my fire from all past embers. Through the cosmic portal of space and time, I integrate the wisdom of mine. I collect myself from all dimensions, assembling now with clear intention. I activate my cellular memory and open the doors to my soul's library. Awaken the blueprint of my mission. Give me courage to walk my vision. My light is needed on this planet. I freely choose to shine upon it. It is safe again to show my face. I live my life with love and grace. That is so beautiful. That is wonderful. And all throughout the book, you have these beautiful, beautiful poems that go with each of the cards. I just love it. Thank you. I did want to ask you, um, is there anything that you could share with us about something maybe that has happened to you regarding ETs or being aboard ship or having some high strangeness? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I This part of me really started to awaken when I went through the apprenticeship of the Peruvian tradition that I practice because, you know, this tradition, like most indigenous traditions, have an origin story that, traces back to the stars. You know, they all acknowledge that we come from the stars. And so um, 
I, I don't know that I have one experience that I could describe. It's more of just the, the amalgamation of everything happening together of, um, you know, in the apprenticeship, we connected with a particular mountain uh, that was to come to us as our guide, and each mountain has a star counterpart. And then I started studying more my connection to Egypt and, and my connection to the star Sirius. And for me, that is my home planet. Uh, my business name is Blue Star Temple, and that is in deference to my Syrian heritage. So it's really just for me, the incredible synchronicities as I've continued to deepen in my exploration, both my, my inner exploration and my outer exploration of my star connections. Okay, okay. Um, now, is there a way to, to purchase some of your artwork or some of your incantations besides ordering these cards? Do you have other places that you sell your artwork? Yeah, so the so the cards uh, and the book you can order from my website or any place that you know these things are sold. But specifically, if there is an image, one of the cards that speaks to a person, or an incantation, and they wish they could purchase the art, have it hanging in their their space, or having it on their altar, on my website I have a store where you can purchase all 44 images, you can purchase all of the incantations uh, in 8x10, 16x20, glossy or matte, framed or unframed, and it's fulfilled by a third-party fulfillment center. So you go to my website, you order, and then the stuff gets created and sent to you so that you can actually have um, the magic in your hands. I know we haven't been able to travel much in the last two years. Do you have any plans of taking people on, on sacred site tours? Is that part of something that you do? I would love to. It, it is not currently part of what I do. And, and if I'm completely honest, uh, my husband and I just moved into a new home about a month ago where I've got about two-thirds of an acre. And I am in a space of, you know, the recognition that a part of my sacred work in the world is coming to completion and a new part is coming online and it is directly tied to the land that I am on. So as I'm developing my relationship to the land and listening, I am listening for what is next for me and how best I can serve. So I don't know if that will become part of what I do or not. <laughs> I kind of had a vision of you uh as I was looking at your cards, I thought, oh, she's one that can go to all these sacred sites and the land will remember her when she shows up. That's what I thought. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so so where do you live now? What state are you in? Um, I'm in Kansas City, Missouri, and I stayed locally. I moved about 12 minutes away from my uh, other place. We lived in a townhome, and so we shared a wall. We didn't have a yard. It was small. It was difficult to have workshops, and so that was a big piece of wanting to shift is so yeah, that I okay. we can have a temple space. So you're in the middle of the country. Well, we're in Arkansas here. Well, I'm in mm -hmm. Arkansas. Ariel, she's over in, in Georgia. Uh, but, um, yeah, we, we – um, really have a lot of friends that, that live up in Kansas, and we have a lot of Kansas people coming to our quest. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a quest four times a year here in Arkansas. So you're, you're, you're in good company where you're living. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, 
Yeah. I'm looking at the time, and I'd like to pass you over to my co-host, Arielle, at this time. And anytime you have a new book or anything that you want to announce on our show, even if it's for five or ten minutes, don't ever hesitate to call and ask us because we're always wanting to empower starseeds on the planet, and you definitely are starseeds. Well, thank you so much for that. So back to you, Arielle. Okay. Well, I have uh, a few questions as well. If, yeah. If a person, you know, we have a lot of very young people that are waking up. Um, you know, when, when people, uh, they start to wake up, they, they get on the Internet and somehow they find our website. So, like, we're doing, um, we're doing work for a younger and younger audience. Um, although, I mean, we still have our more established, advanced star seeds. But, you know, people that are still in high school, still in college, and, and they, they know they're different. Um, what, if you were to speak to them... You know, and they started thinking that you know there must be something wrong with me because, you know, I'm I'm so sensitive, or or I I I know that that other person is really unhappy. How would you tell them to kind of make that um, that first step when they have an inkling that they might be an empath? Mm-hmm. Well, well, the first thing I would say is you're not crazy. <laughs> which is it's actually the the title of the of chapter one of my book. You're not crazy, but you're not normal either. We we are we are establishing a new norm, if you will, and so it's important for the young ones to understand you're not crazy, but you are still part of a minority, if you will. And, you know where it sometimes feels like you're alone and isolated, or people don't understand you, and so. It's important to trust yourself, listen to yourself, but also find a way to develop the tools to manage your energy, to ground yourself, to recognize what is and isn't yours. And it's a process. But Mm -hmm. these tools are critical if we're going to be in a body because the sort of rules of engagement human to human are different than if we're just in spirit form. And so it's important for the, the young people to know your sensitivities are not real. You're not making things up. And, you know, find your tribe, seek, um, and know that you are not alone and that you are here very much on purpose. And what if, you know, like I'm sure that there's a lot of um, parental and peer um non-support mm-hmm. you know you know and i mean i mean star seeds in not just empaths but star seeds across the board mm-hmm. you know at some point someone made them feel like oh yeah you're you're a freak so right. they submerge everything mm-hmm. and then at some point later in life it comes back out again it comes yeah. back around so what advice would you give to avoid that, that um, you know, running into the closet. Right. And it's tricky because where we are in our, our human evolution, our evolution of consciousness, 
we're still kind of the first ones, the, the empaths and sensitive souls that are here on the planet, we're, we're the first ones busting through the wall. So at a soul level, we chose to come here knowing that we weren't going to have many mentors or, you know, people paving the way ahead of us. We're, we're all here paving the way for the ones coming behind us. And so the, the, the current construct for most people is, you show up, you're sensitive, people don't know what to do with you, you get ostracized, you, you take those qualities, you shove them underground, and then at some point a few decades later when you, can't, when you can no longer tolerate the dissonance within you, then you do your healing work, your spiritual awakening, and you know, come to your authentic self. I would just say that the sooner that you can face if you will, work through, get support around the, um, the traumas and woundings that you're experiencing, the, the sooner you can get to the point of empowerment and having a powerful, strong toolbox. And that brings us to my next question. <laughs> you have a <laughs> lot of resources on your website. So, I mean, you've talked about, you know, your book and the, and the activation cards um, what what other tools have you created to assist people with this kind of thing? Mm-hmm. I have a video home study course called The Art and Practice of Energetic Clearing. So it's all about tools and techniques for cleansing your own energy field, your, your space that you live in, your sacred objects. Uh, I have a variety of meditations for grounding, for clearing your energy field, for uh, doing kind of a roto-rooter of the chakra system. Um, I I have uh, a couple of workbooks. I have an embodiment manual uh, that talks about the importance of embodiment and kind of the disembodiment epidemic that we have and to help you work through that. I have different coaching packages if somebody wants to work with me individually. So there's uh, quite a few different things uh, available to help support people. Now, would you define what you mean by embodiment? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's basically how how much we are inhabiting ourselves, right? Are we running our full life force through our entire body? Uh, if you think of it in terms of the, the chakra system, it is our life force in all seven chakras, right? Are we are we cycling from toenail to hair follicle? And and what happens for a lot of people early in life as a natural byproduct of trauma, wounding, um, you know, painful circumstances, accidents, we leave our body. And uh, an extreme example might be, I'm sure we've all heard of somebody who got in a car accident or some kind of accident, and they're hovering over themselves at the accident site or in the hospital. That's an extreme example of leaving the body. And so it's, it's not bad to leave the body. It's a, it's a coping mechanism. But what happens is it becomes... Um, a, a way of life, right? We, we leave our body to avoid the pain of, a, of something happening in the moment, but then we don't come fully back into ourselves, and we tend to live in the upper chakras, live in our head, um, and there's, there's a lot more I could say about that. But embodiment is really about bringing, bringing through your divinity all the way through your body and anchoring it into the earth plane. Yeah, I'm I'm asking because I know that um a lot of starseeds um 
find it challenging to stay grounded. Mm-hmm. So, and you have something on your website that helps with that. And that's yeah. I mean, uh, it's like <laughs> just just barely, you know, being in your body enough to be walking around and looking like a like a human. But mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of an analogy, and it's kind of not coming to me uh, of how that you know could translate. But yeah, so so okay, so you're you're driving your car and you've only got one leg in the car. Your door's open and your other leg's dragging on the ground. So you're not completely in the vehicle. <laughs> right, not not fully present, not um, inhabiting your full self. Yeah. No. So are there? Um, you said you do, you also do private coaching. I do. And is that um, you know like um, virtual or in person or both? It is, it is both, yeah. I mean, over uh, the last couple of years, I've had to go completely virtual, but uh, I am getting back into, um, for people who live locally that want to do in-person coaching, I'm, uh, as soon as my temple space is set up, I'll be ready to do that here in the next week or two to, to start having people in my home again. Now, so you've got a, you've got a little bit of a, a nice you know plot of land uh, I, when you were talking about that, I was like, "Oh, she's going to go out there with all kinds, you know, with a, you know, a medicine wheel, a labyrinth, a, you know, fountains <laughs> or something. You know, you're going to you're going to create a, a sacred sanctuary right out your yes. back door. Is that Absolutely. something you've been thinking about? Yes, uh, and there's already a garden that the previous owners created, and so I'm just taking my time, listening to the land, seeing how it wants to serve and what it would ask me to create. And uh, do you you use crystals in your work? I most certainly do. I cannot tell you how many boxes we moved that said rocks and crystals. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there there, are some of your your materials for creating that outdoor absolutely. sanctuary. Yes, yes absolutely. Mm. Mm-hmm. As well have as you, inside, yeah. Of course. Have yeah. you ever been to um, Mount Ida and gone, I, you know, crystal digging? I have. I think it was somewhere around maybe 02 or 03 that I went with a group of girlfriends and went crystal digging for the first time, and it was just fabulous. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's something that we do because we have uh, four gatherings a year in that Mount Ida area, you know, the the heart of the crystal grid for the planet. And there's just nothing like digging a crystal out of the ground and, and seeing it, you know, for the first time by anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're. Yeah. I mean, isn't, I still have. Yeah, say, I say, say Missouri's just right cluster. on top of Arkansas. Pardon oh me? yeah, yeah. It's it is. Um, it's not too far of a drive. I the the big cluster that I dug back then, the biggest cluster that came out of my dig, is still sitting in my office. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I have a I have a crystal that was from my first trip there, and um, I've I've had it I've had it all this all these years, and um, it, it came from that area. Mm-hmm. It's, it's. I mean, I've got a lot of them, but this one is like the big one. 
So um, when when you were in the Air Force, were you on the ground? I was. Um, my field of study, if you will, uh, not quite the right way to say it, my, my career field was intelligence. Uh, and so... I was stationed in different places. I basically, you know, as they as they tease us, I flew a desk. <laughs> uh-huh. Flew a desk, because yeah. I was think I was thinking when when Anastasia was doing the news and talking about, you know, the the you know military encounters with unidentified things. I was wondering, it's like, did you ever see anything unexplainable like that when you were in the service? I didn't. No, unfortunately, no cool stories. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if you were sitting behind the desk, I don't think you know. <laughs> right. Even if you had a window, they might not have come that close. Yeah. But yeah, yeah I, I kind of was smiling when Anastasia was reporting that story because they're still dancing around the truth. And we had it. We had a uh, a guest on our show that wrote a book called the, the her and her partner the mothers of us ufo statistics it's like man you got to oh. you got to get i mean they have i mean it just it was an enormous project of compiling and referencing and looking at all these patterns and a lot of them came from military records so um yeah i was thinking <laughs> congress needs to have a copy of that book <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, I was just—I was just wondering uh, if, I mean, if you were obviously always in a building, uh, you weren't flying and, and witnessing any of that stuff. But Mm-mm. you know, I don't think we—I don't think we need the government to tell us that they're real. We already know. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, they'll—they'll be, be the last ones. <laughs> but um, is there anything else that you would like to discuss? Well, I would like to share with people uh, a special. Um, way of using the empath activation cards. Um, when I created them, I knew that I I was being led to weave in a, a different overlay of purpose. And so you can absolutely use these cards like you would any other oracle card where you can pull a single card or you can gaze at the image or do a spread. But what came together for me. I was about 80% done with the writing and the art and started getting a feel for, okay, these cards want to be organized into groups. And the, the original art is on eight by 10 canvas. So I just took all the art and spread it out on my bed where I could see it all at one time. And they just started organizing themselves into four groups of 11 and and what my guides made clear was you if you use this guidebook and read it from start to finish you can use it as a self-guided initiation into the mysteries of higher consciousness and so there's um, four initiatory paths so if you if you look in the book they are The book is divided into these four sections. And so I just want to read the the titles of the initiatory paths. So the first one is Healing, Holing, and Practices for Embodiment. Initiatory path two is Light Body Expansion and Tools of Mastery over your perception and experience. Initiatory path three 
is activating higher consciousness, the astral plane, and tools of multidimensionality. And initiatory path four is cosmic mission, star relatives, and your power as co-creator with divinity. So you can tell as you progress through these um, paths, the frequency raises, right? It starts just in kind of in the physical plane, the earth body, the, the personal experience, and then it starts moving more into the transpersonal and the vibration raises and the perspective gets higher until you're up at the, you know, galactic, cosmic, widest possible, multidimensional perspective. So, um, and, and one of the spreads that's listed in the book, if you want to do kind of a mini activation sequence for yourself, is a, is a 10-card spread where you can work with one card a week for 10 weeks as your own personal activation sequence. Well, I, liked, I really like the way you've <clears throat> kind of made those. They're like tears. Mm-hmm. Because first, before you do anything, you have to heal yourself. Yes. You know, if you're carrying um, trauma, whether it's hidden from you or, <clears throat> excuse me, or not, um, you've got to you've got to heal and clear yourself um, before you before you do anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And 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 it's um, and I'd like to augment that because what I've discovered, which I've kind of had to, how do I want to say this? we can get a little left brain sometimes with our healing process. And we think, well, once I fill in the blank, then I'll be able to fill in the blank, right? You know, so once I heal this thing, then I'll be able to start my business. But it's not a linear A to B to C to D kind of a thing. It is, yes, you need to do your inner work and acknowledge what is unacknowledged and heal and transform and that is a journey. You're, you're never going to get to the end of it because it's a spiral path. So it's not, you can't just say, well, once I'm done healing this thing, that's not really how it works, <laughs> you know? And so I don't want people to, to put off a, a goal, a dream, a passion, a calling because, well, I'm, I'm not done with my healing work, you know, like if they're thinking about it from a very left brain clinical perspective. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's not a cookbook. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> two spoons of this and a cup of that, and, and then you can move on to the frosting. Right. Yeah. God, well, it has just been wonderful having you back on the show. And um, w- was there anything else that you wanted to mention before we wrap it up? Um, nothing is coming to mind. Just if people want to find out more about what I do, you've got my website listed, bluestartemple.org. Um, and if they want a personalized, like a signed copy with a personalized inscription of the Oracle deck or my evolutionary empath book, they can order it directly from me and they'll get a signed copy with a personalized inscription, which could be for them or as a gift. Oh, excellent. Excellent. And so uh, I want to encourage everyone to check out Stephanie's website, bluestartemple.org. And there's something there for everybody who thinks that, you know, who knows that they're sensitive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a, as a starting point. And, you know, as you were reading uh, and describing the five um, uh, the qualities, qualities 
of an mm-hmm. empath. I thought, you know, that's that's a lot of that's a, that's a lot of starseed qualities as well. It is, yeah, it really is. There's a yeah, lot. And of do you think that there. that most um, a lot of empaths are also starseeds, but not all starseeds are empaths? Would you agree with that? You know, I haven't, uh, that's something I'd like to contemplate and sit with because more and more what you're saying about the the overlap, right, the similarities is really starting to come up in my consciousness. And, you know, I Mm -hmm. think as we are, in a way, we're all empaths. We're we're all born with that coding, with that blueprint. It's just a matter of the personal choices we make in our life as to whether or not they stay dormant or hidden or get turned on. Right. I believe yeah. that we're all star seeds. You, you trace that, you know, we're all made of stardust. And so some people are just drawn to that in this lifetime. They, they chose at a soul level that they're going to come into the planet now and they're going to be a conscious empath and they're going to awaken to their star seed nature and they're going to help, contribute to the the awakening of all of mankind yeah i i agree that i i mean every i think everybody has that seed that kernel that mm-hmm. that dna coding uh but whether or not it gets <clears throat> activated or ignored might depend on on circumstances on events mm-hmm. and sequences and your own um you know spiritual evolution Exactly. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, but yeah, I, I do. I do believe that everyone has that ability, um, but not everyone uh, embraces it, activates it, develops it, and mm-hmm. and offers it as a service. Um, and even you know, like you said, whether it's with animals or <clears throat> excuse me, Mother Nature, um, other people, uh, mm-hmm. it, it's it's really. And it's good that you also pointed out that there are certain times when you want to close the doors, you know, if you're going to go into a big crowd of people. Um, I, I kind of call it energy cooties, um, <laughs> you, know, you know, because, I mean, I mean, I, I pick up energies from other people and that's mm-hmm. when I'm when I'm doing my spiritual work. That's an advantage. But, you know, when I'm going to the grocery store, it might not be. Exactly. You know, yes. you know especially if you're, you're standing next to somebody who's carrying, you know, something really heavy. You know, I could mm-hmm. come out of the store and, and just it's like, oh, man. Yeah. What happened to my good mood? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. which, which is a great signal, honestly. If people, people are, are looking for a sign, you know, if you – if you're fine and then you walk into the grocery store or a big box store and you come out and you're angry and you want to sell your kids and you want to stab your spouse and you want to you know, <laughs> run over the first person, it's just like, take a moment because that is a pretty clear indication that you just took on a bunch of energy from other people. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that, yeah. And I, I like your, your description of the technique of, uh, you know, imagining the, the, the cow catcher on the front mm-hmm. or a bubble um, I, I use various techniques, but when I'm sitting in the parking lot of that grocery store, I just it only takes a few seconds yes. to, to you know to put that around yourself, and then you can walk out the same way you walked in. 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah, I I'm a Star Trek fan, and so I always tell my husband when we're we're out shopping together, I'm like, okay, shields up. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You're talking to one of the biggest Star Trek fans on the planet. Sorry. Uh, because it. Oh yeah. Well, you know, Gene Roddenberry was a contactee, and mm-hmm. he channeled so much stuff from the nine. And you know, looking at any Star Trek, whether it's the, you know the original, the, the mm-hmm. Next Generation, mm-hmm. Voyager. Next time you watch an episode, think of how many references to the number nine uh, or eighteen. It's all through it. How interesting! You know, yeah. you know, NC seventeen oh one. That's a nine. <laughs> Yeah, it sure is. Oh my oh, god. Oh yeah, yeah, and and it it it's it's sad that a lot of young star seeds and I, I I give an example, it's like, well it's like you know, like Mr. Spock, well who's that? It's like, Oh my gosh. So <laughs> <laughs> go, run out know. right now and go get that. <laughs> yeah, right. Because there really is a federation, you know. Mm-hmm. Um and and I just I like to watch Star Trek because that's a world where there's no poverty, there's no sickness, um, you know, there's still some skirmishes, but they have to have a an antagonist, you know, to write right. the script. But right. um, yeah, watching Star Trek is a real education for star seeds. So uh, I'm I'm giving you all that assignment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, watch, and Deanna Troy is kind of the original empath, you know. Like, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting that. Um, you know, Mr. Spock was completely unemotional, unempathic. And then when the next generation came out, they had someone who was the antithesis of him, who was mm-hmm. totally empathic. Um, so, but yeah, that and, and feminine as well. So, yeah. There's even a book out called Everything I Need to Know I Learned from Watching Star Trek. So, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, shields up. Shields yes. up when you know when you are out in the third dimension. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, once again, I want to encourage everyone to take a look at Stephanie's website and and browse through all she has to offer, because it could be the the defining moment in your development and education evolution to activate and fully realize your empathic abilities. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, well, got off on a little bit of a tangent there, but I always I, I can't resist talking about Star Trek. So, uh, with that, um, thank you so much for the work that you do, and for being our guest this evening. And as Lavendar said, anytime you've got something um, new that you want to talk about, whether it's a um, an event or a product, please, you're always welcome to come back. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. You are so welcome. So that is it for us tonight, boys and girls, and we will be back two weeks from tonight. Thank you so much for listening, and we thank Stephanie Redfeather for being with us. Until next time, good night, everyone. been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com.